0: All right, well today we finally get to turn the corner on Paul's letter to the Romans. The last eight weeks have been heavy. I think the words of Paul, they've been like raining down on us like blows of a heavyweight fighter, delivering blow after blow to our pride, our hypocrisy, our self-justification, our excuses. Paul has left no leaf unturned, as he has dragged every single person, every human being, into the courtroom of God. And he has forced us to stand before God, the, the righteous judge. And he's presented before that righteous judge the mountain of evidence of our sin against him, and accused us of crimes against God so heinous and evil that when we are found to be guilty, no other sentence could be possibly delivered other than eternal death in hell. But now, today, here's what Paul does. Paul offers life to the one on death row. He, he offers a way out, an escape from the judgment of God. And, and if you understand the reality, if, if you have sensed the weight of our sin before God, and understand the reality of our guilt before God, there is no better message that could possibly be delivered. But as we turn to Romans three, even though we sense a shift in what Paul is saying, we sense the shift that he's moving from crushing us under the guilt of our sin before the Lord to now offering us free righteousness in Christ. We, We sense that shift, but the way that Paul writes, it's like a lawyer aiming to be exceptionally clear to the judge, not the jury. Okay, in other words, Paul, he is is writing as one writing to those skilled in the law, not the person who just received the letter in the mail that said, hey, show up at the courtroom tomorrow. And today what I want to do is I want to walk through the case that Paul is making for righteousness in Christ as plainly as I can, so that none of what Paul is saying here gets lost in translation. And there's three main points that Paul makes about our righteousness in Christ. In other words, there are three main points that Paul makes about how guilty sinners like you and me can actually be made right before God, made innocent in Christ. And my aim is to walk us through those three points in verses 21 through 26. Now, before we do that, don't lose sight of the fact that Paul is writing to persuade you Paul is absolutely writing to persuade you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are at in your relationship with God, Paul is writing to persuade you, even you. So for those of you who are here today and you are joyfully in Christ, Paul writes to remind you of what you already know in order to move you to worship. Because we exist for worship. We exist for worship, and Paul, he's writing to move you to worship. Transformation happens in worship. That's where people are gonna change. It's in worship of the Lord. That's where church unity happens. It's actually in worship. Remember Paul, he's writing to knit the church together. Unity happens in worship. And so he wants to move you to worship and nothing moves us to worship like the truth of the gospel. If something else moves you to worship, you've got trouble and you see for those of you who are here today and you've heard the gospel a thousand times and you're not all that excited to hear it for the thousand and first time Paul wants to persuade you he writes to move you to persuade you that there is no greater message in the world there is nothing that you need to hear more than the gospel one more time and to rejoice in it and if this is where you're at you're not all that excited to hear about this free gift of God's grace through Christ. Not all that excited to hear it again. Here's my concern. My concern is, I'm not sure you've ever really tasted it in the first place. Because when we are in Christ, nothing moves us to worship like the gospel. And for those of you who are here today, perhaps you've thought of yourself as a Christian, or perhaps not. But if you're here today and you've you've never really heard or understood the message that Paul is writing to us today. Paul, he's writing to persuade you that there is one way and one way only to be made right with God. To be found genuinely in Christ. To genuinely be a Christian. And that is through faith in the message that he writes for us in Romans chapter 3. He wants to move you to genuine faith. Christianity and the question is are you willing to be persuaded by what God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 is your heart tender and prepared to be persuaded by Paul and by God himself that is the aim of the Lord it is to move us to genuine worship to genuine faith that we may be saved from the guilt of our sin, and not go to hell, but instead have an eternal relationship full of life with Him. And you see, all this week I've been sweating over this message, number one, because I ate too much turkey, number two, because if you don't have eternal life, Paul is literally spelling out for us the very words that can save us from an eternity in hell. If you will just understand and believe the message that he proclaims. And nothing in your life matters more than what you do with the message of Christ. So here we go three points. About our righteousness in Christ. Okay? Number one, you have failed to earn God's righteousness. This is the unfortunate truth that sits at the foundation of everything else Paul's going to say about our righteousness in Christ. You have failed to earn God's righteousness. It's the most con- concise point made by Paul in these six verses. It, it, it's the point he just spent two and a half chapters making. But it's the most concise point made in, in these particular verses, and yet it still might be the strongest point that he makes in verses 21 through 26. You have failed to earn righteousness before the God of the Bible. In verse 23, he says, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what he's actually saying is is three things that are at the foundation of everything else he's going to say. One, he's saying you have a standard in life that you must meet. There is a standard in life as human beings that you actually have to meet. I think this is something we sense in our heart. This is where the desire to be a good man or a good woman actually comes from. I think almost everyone you meet, it is fairly universal. There, There is a hunger inside of us. To be good, to to be a good person. We are concerned about it because God has placed it upon our hearts And, and through that it's we understand if there is a desire to be good there must be a standard by which goodness can be evaluated. Okay you have a standard that you must meet and when we talk about righteousness I want this to be exceptionally clear when we talk about righteousness or when we make the statement we have failed to earn god's righteousness what we're saying is that there is a standard in life that we need to meet and righteousness means that we have met god's standard of goodness we have satisfied god's standard of goodness we are right with God the way that life works everywhere on the planet is that we have standards that we are expected to live up to as an Iowan I have standards that I need to meet if I want to avoid spending my life in jail as an American I have standards that I need to meet okay there, there are standards in place w- 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 no matter who you are no matter where you are born there are standards that exist that you must live up to and as human beings living in God's world that he created we have standards we must meet okay and if we don't live a certain way and meet the standards that exist we've problems on our hands we are not self-made we don't get to make up the rules We don't get to just change the standard whenever we fail to meet it, you are created by the God who you are accountable to, and you have a standard in life that you must meet. Second, that standard is not whatever you want it to be, the standard is revealed by God in His law, it is real, it is concrete. It is not changing. There is an actual standard for what it means to be a good person in the world. If you were to ask somebody, you know, on the street, are you a good person? Regardless of what they think about themselves, there is an actual, real, concrete, unchanging standard by which we will be evaluated by the righteous judge who made us. And it is revealed for us in God's law. I'm not a good person just because I say so or because I feel like it. There's a real standard of what it means to be a good person. And God has revealed it through his law. He's also stamped it on our hearts through the conscience. Thirdly, this is where Paul could not be any more clear. You have failed to meet God's standard. You have failed to meet the standard that exists in the world that you must live up to. That is Paul's point. All have sinned against God's righteous laws and all fail to glorify him we have a standard that we've not met and we don't need to exhaust this point because paul has already done that for us over the last two and a half chapters but paul is incredibly careful he does not want to leave any doubts about how you stack up against the standard that exists the real standard in real life of what it means to be right before God or a good person before the Lord, you do not meet the standard of God's righteousness. Which means you have forfeited any right to eternal life and instead you have earned an eternal sentence of death in hell. Paul has exhausted this point for two and a half chapters, pleading with us, to think sensibly and rightly about this point, this is like the crux of the issue. If we if we can't grasp this, we will never be moved to worship Christ. If if you cannot grasp, if you have no sense of the danger that you're actually in, you will have no sensitivity towards Jesus Christ. And my point in saying this it's not to to judge anyone, but it's to hold up a mirror in front of us that we can see ourselves clearly. And you see this is supposed, to, it's supposed to stop us in our tracks. Okay, I want you to think for a second when we think back to seeing the doctor. You know, imagine you go in for a routine checkup at the doctor this week. You're expecting to just sit down, hear the same old things you always hear, like keep the cholesterol down, try to keep the weight off, Exercise, you're like, yep, 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 got it. But instead, he calls you on the phone ahead of time. He says, hey, I hope you're sitting down. I have some really tough news for you. You have six months to live, it's really bad. You're not going to make it. Casey, a phone call like that changes everything immediately. Your heart is racing your head's spinning everything in your life gets put in a totally different perspective and we're all one phone call away from that okay but see what Paul what, what he's doing he, it's like he's trying to shake us awake to recognize the, the bad news is even worse than that You're actually accountable to God for how you've lived. You've actually sinned against him. You're actually bound for hell because you don't meet his holy and righteous standard. It's not six months and then the grave. It's actually any, your your outlook is even worse than that. You, You have a real eternity of hell in front of you because of your sin against God. Our heart should race at that thought. Our head should spin at that thought. Our life should be put in a totally different perspective at that thought. And you see, when you get a phone call like that, that's that's what happens unless you don't believe him. And Paul here, he absolutely intends to be believed. He intends to be incredibly clear. You have failed to earn righteousness before God. And you can't just fix it. It's not that kind of disease. You can't just beat it. Everything you try is going to fail. But now Paul tells us this. Okay. This is where we make the turn. This is what Paul says. There is a way to be righteous. There is a way to be righteous. That has nothing to do with your own record of right and wrong. There is a way to be righteous, but it has absolutely nothing to do with your own record of right and wrong. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. See, that sentence that you have, that that diagnosis we just received over the last two and a half chapters, guilty, guilty, guilty of sin before a real, holy, and righteous God. He says there's a way you can escape the judgment of God. There is a way that you can beat this diagnosis, but it actually has absolutely nothing to do with you. Paul, it's like he lays down a massive wall. He draws a huge line between you and your record of righteousness or your record of right and wrong or your record of the things that you have done in your life and the righteousness of God. He says, there is a way to have this. There's a way to have the righteousness of God, but it is totally separate from and absolutely divided from you and everything that you do or could possibly do. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed separate from Apart from the law, separate from how you meet or do not meet God's standard in the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. He says it's been told to us, even from the Old Testament on forward, Paul says, separate from how we measure up to the standard of God's law. Totally, totally separate from that. Draw a massive dividing line in your mind. Totally separate from that. There is a path through which we can have the righteousness of God. In other words, through which we can meet his standards and be made right with him. Which is what we need In order to have eternal life and relationship with God and it has nothing to do with how many good things or how many bad things you have done it has nothing to do with your church attendance it has nothing to do with your own religious record it has nothing to do with what you have done it has nothing to do with your own record of right and wrong nothing nothing at all They could not possibly be less related. This path of righteousness and your own deeds and what you have done. He draws a hard line between you and the righteousness of God. He says there's a way to have it. You just need to recognize first and foremost it has nothing to do with you. Or what you can do. See, it has nothing to do with whether or not you go to church. Okay, this path that God lays out for our righteousness, where we can be made right with Him, where we can actually meet His holy standard of being good, satisfying His standard of goodness, has nothing to do with whether or not you go to church. Going to church doesn't make you right with God. It has nothing to do with whether or not you are baptized. Baptism will not make you right with God, neither will communion. It has nothing to do with how you compare to other people. It has nothing to do with how evil and wicked others have been, and how relatively kind and thoughtful you have been. It has nothing to do with you. That is not the path that Paul is laying out for us to be made right with God. And here's where this is really important, okay? So there's a massive dividing line that Paul wants to be exceptionally clear between your record of right and wrong, what you do, and how we can actually be made right with God. But if I asked you the question, how do you know that you are actually a Christian? How do you know that you are actually right with God? how do you know it how quickly does your mind go to something like well I go to church I think I'm a pretty good person my parents baptized me I've always gone to church But what Paul is doing is he's drawing a line to separate all of that from the path that he is about to lay out in terms of how we actually obtain righteousness before God. Right standing. He, he's trying to divorce you from all of that. Separate you from all of that. He says, apart from the law. Apart from anything that we could do to try to make ourselves right with God. And here's the path that Paul lays out for how we can be righteous before God. Point number three, the way to be righteous before God is through faith in Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ. In other words the righteousness of God that we must have in order to be made right with God, it can only be received as a gift from God when we believe in Christ. Paul says this, the only way to meet God's standard of goodness, of holiness, of righteousness before Him, the only way, you have to receive it as a gift humbly through faith in Christ. You must receive a pardon for your sin from God Himself like a gift. I was up in Minneapolis this week. For Thanksgiving, and uh, my parents—they still get the newspaper. I don't know. Does anybody here still get the paper newspaper? <laughs> no one. Okay. <laughs> one. There we go. Thought my parents were the only ones. <laughs> Good to know. I'll—I'll I'll let them know <laughs> they're not. But it was super weird. On the front page of the Minneapolis paper, uh, there was a picture that I recognized right away. It was the officer who killed George Floyd up in Minneapolis. Okay? And I recognized this picture right away, and I thought for a second, like, this is a paper from 2020. I immediately got heart palpitations. I was like, I, I was back in COVID. It was horrible. And I don't remember, I don't know if you remember this situation, but uh, I, I think basically the whole world does. But there was a police officer in Minneapolis uh, who, on video, was... Uh, seen uh, pressing his knee into the neck of a young black man up in Minneapolis, okay, named George Floyd. And the situation started riots and all kinds of uh, stuff in our our country. And this man, his name is Derek Chauvin. He is serving a 22-year sentence in federal prison, okay. And I opened the paper at my parents' house, right on the front page, picture of him. I thought, this is so weird. What is going on? Why is his picture on the front page here? And I was reading it again. And the reason that he was in the paper is because he had sought a pardon from a judge. Uh, pardon for his sentence. And he was pleading with the judge for a pardon for his sentence. And it was rejected tossed out, and I think he actually got stabbed like the next day uh, in prison, but I just thought to myself, like a pardon is really his only hope, okay? There's, there's no changing like the video that's out there. There's no changing the, the evidence that is against him. That's not going to change. The only way that he's getting out is for someone to grant him a pardon, he can't earn it. He can't undo what has happened. He can't he can't claim like hey that didn't really happen. The videos out there for the whole world to see. The only hope is to receive a pardon and you see it's so easy for us to Puff up our chest in pride. But we're not better than that. We're not above that. What we have actually earned, if, if there was like a, like a video recording of our worst moments of sinning against a holy and righteous God, and you see that, like, The judgment of God is perfect. He doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't miss a thing in our lives, in our actions, in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our speech. And the evidence is there. And it can't be erased. And we can't talk our way out of it. And when we understand that, I think the sooner we understand that, the better off we will be. But we can't earn righteousness before god our only hope is we have to receive a pardon from the judge what we have earned is our sentence in hell the evidence is against us there's no changing that in order for us to be right with god we need to receive a pardon as a gift of his grace And what he says is this, in verse 22, The righteousness of God, it is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When Paul says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yes, he is talking to you and to me. And he means to tell us there is a judge that we are accountable to and that judge is god and he is going to find us guilty when we stand before him in his courtroom but then he says this we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in christ jesus justification justification is an act of declaring or making righteous before God showing someone or something to be right with God justification it is the act of declaring or making right with God And do you see what he said? He, he, He said that we are declared right before God. We are justified, even though he just told us our own actions are sinful and fall short of God's glorious standard. He says we are declared right before God, not because of our actions, not because of what we have done, but instead freely by his grace, meaning it is a gift of God's favor. That's what grace is. It is the gift, the free gift of God's favor. We are declared right with God as a free gift of God's favor towards us. How? Through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, redemption, it is the ransom paid to purchase our freedom. Redemption is the ransom paid to purchase the freedom of one being held imprisoned. In death of Jesus it was like a ransom payment. And the debt that was owed because of our sin was death. And it was a debt that we couldn't pay. We were like hostages being held captive under our sin. And you know what's true of hostages? Paul is saying we were like hostages held captive by our sin under the payment of death. And you know what's true of hostages? Hostages do not earn their own freedom. That is not how it works. Hostages do not pay their own ransom. They are helpless. They are dependent on somebody outside of themselves paying their ransom and buying their freedom. And what Jesus did through his death on the cross is to pay our ransom— See again, Paul, he draws this huge line between you and the righteousness of God because you can't do it. You can't earn it. Your record of right and wrong is what got you condemned in the first place. But what God did is He purchased our ransom through the death of Christ by His own blood to pay the ransom that was owed for our freedom. And He did it freely as a gift of His own grace. He didn't do it because we had earned it. We had earned the opposite. He didn't do it because he had to or he was forced into it. He, he did it freely as a gift of his own favor towards us. That he might give us life when we had earned death. That he might give us righteousness when we had earned judgment in hell. But see, the only way to receive that gift of being made right with God is you have to humble yourself and believe Jesus. You have to humble yourself and receive it through Christ. All the righteousness in the world that you will ever need and all of the righteousness that is required when you stand before God at the end of your life in his courtroom to be judged by him, all of the righteousness that you need, you can receive it. You can. And in fact, you must receive it because you can't earn even one drop of it through your own life. Because of your sin. But you can receive all the righteousness you'll ever need through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Humble faith in Jesus Christ. The question I want to close with this morning is this. So how can we receive the righteousness of God through faith? How can we actually receive the righteousness of God through faith? If you're here and you're wondering to yourself, like, I know that I need the righteousness of God through Christ, but how can I actually have it? What what does it mean to be made right with God through faith in Christ? I want to point you to one story in the gospel of Luke that Jesus tells, and I want to highlight two things from it. Okay, it's in Luke chapter 18. If you have a Bible with you, you can have it out and follow along in Luke 18. But this is what Jesus says in Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Luke says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, a very religious man, and the other, a tax collector. A tax collector was a a, a nasty man, a traitor in his own country. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How can we receive the righteousness of God through faith? No matter how many times you've been to church, I want you to track with me through this. This is so important. Number one, we must forfeit our sense of self-righteousness. We must forfeit our sense of self-righteousness. Perhaps the most powerful force in the world preventing human beings from being made right with God is the sense that we're already right. We're already righteous in ourselves or in our religion. And the more religious we are, the greater the danger is. Do you see that in the Word? The greater the danger is that we just inherently trust in our own religious record to save us in the day of judgment. The the greater the danger is that we will beat our chest, we will look to ourselves and, and, and say, I go to church. Of course I'm a Christian. I give a tenth of course I'm a Christian so what's going on with this Pharisee he's trusting in his own record remember Paul he draws a huge dividing line and he says it's not going to depend on you it's not about you how are you going to obtain the righteousness of God it's not about your record of right and wrong it's not about your religious record what makes me right with God, the Pharisee says, it is my religious record, but he's mistaken and God is going to humble him at judgment. And Probably 10 years ago now, I was on a flight to Columbus, Ohio, it was for a work trip and I was sitting next to my boss at the time, and I asked him, hey, like, have you ever thought about life and death? Like, what do you think is going to happen when you die? Have you ever thought about eternity? Have you, um, are you worried at all that, that you might die and go to hell? He looked at me and he said, uh, No, I never really worry about that. Uh, and he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a gun. No, he pulled out rosary beads. <laughs> he pulled out rosary beads. And he looked at me and he said, I carry these with me everywhere I go. So I just never really worry about it. But you see, How easily do we have things like that in the back of our mind that just brings us comfort? Like, I know I'm, like, I I, I go to church. I know I'm a Christian because I go to church. I know that I'm right with God because I've been baptized. And I just looked at them and told them, those are not going to save you. Nothing that we do is going to be the source of our salvation. And we need to be careful to forfeit our own self-righteousness. But second is this, and this is where we'll close. How can we receive the righteousness of God through faith? We must humbly cast ourselves in the Lord looking for mercy. But see, that's that's a real biblical truth that has to be a reality in your life. Not just something you've heard before at church. See, I love this picture of the tax collector. I think it's such a helpful illustration of what faith actually looks like. There's no pretense in him. There's no pride. There's no self-righteousness. Just a humble recognition. I am a sinner. And what does he do? He pleads for God's mercy. He casts himself at the feet of the Lord... And he asks for mercy. And in Christ, we don't have to wonder, we don't have to worry about whether or not we will receive God's mercy. He's promised it to us in Jesus. But it's when we cast ourselves upon his feet, we humble ourselves before the Lord, and we ask for his mercy by faith, that we can be confident we receive it in Jesus. But here's the deal. If you have never actually humbled yourself before the Lord asking for his mercy through Christ, number one, don't presume that you have it. Just because you have been to church most of your life, do not presume that you have God's mercy. If you have not humbled yourself and asked Don't presume that we are right with God because we have served in church. Do you see how easily this can happen? Like we can just sit week after week passively. And and ultimately rest in our own record. Resting in our record in the church. Or whether we've been baptized. or, Or the list of things that we just cling to in our minds. But have we been humbled and broken before God and cast ourselves upon Him asking for His mercy? I think sometimes there's just like a a, a proud presumption in our heart, almost like we just, of course I deserve it. I am a good, faithful, church-attending Christian. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. And Paul has drawn a line between our own record and the Lord's righteousness. And he says the only way that you can have His righteousness is to receive it humbly as a gift. But second, if you need God's mercy, I want you to take heart. If you need God's mercy, I want you to take heart because all you must do, all you must do is humble yourself. And ask for his mercy through Christ. Now there is much more that God will do in you through that. Make no mistake. But all you must do is humble yourself and ask for his mercy in Christ. Look at what Jesus says. This man, the tax collector, the sinner... Who realized, Lord, I am absolutely sinful and hopeless before you. I am not worthy of your righteousness. He beat his chest. He cried out for the mercy of God. And he went home justified. Made right. Declared right. Declared satisfying the standard of God. That man satisfied the standard of God that very day. But by no works of his own only by the free gift of God's grace. And we need to humble ourselves and cry out for the mercy of God. And then after that, we rejoice. We rejoice because even though we have sinned and fall short of God's glory, we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. We rejoice, okay? We rejoice in the righteousness that Christ has earned for us, and that's exactly what we do. In communion, that is what we will do as we close our time in song together as well. And as we take communion this morning, we're going to close with two things. We're going to close as we take communion together, and then we'll sing a few songs together, rejoicing in the salvation and the righteousness we have in Christ. But as we take communion, I want to read for you from the first Lord's Supper and the night He was betrayed in Matthew chapter 26. And I want you to pay attention to what's happening here. Matthew 26 says this, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood that establishes the covenant, the relationship that we are going to have for all of eternity with God. It is shed, my blood is shed for many, for the forgiveness of sins, for your pardon. Your ransom was paid by the blood of Jesus. But I tell you from this moment, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it in a new way in my Father's kingdom with you. And notice this, verse 30, after singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They partook in the Lord's body and blood, shed for them for their forgiveness, for their pardon, that they may be made right with God. And they celebrated together by singing songs to one another and to the Lord. that is exactly what we're going to do communion it is a time for those of you who are in christ for those of you who are believers in jesus christ this is a time for us to rejoice together in the salvation that we have through jesus the elements remind us of what jesus has done the ransom that he paid to purchase our salvation And through this, God, He ministers to our soul. He nourishes our soul, and He knits us together as body believers in Christ. The elements for communion are under your seat, and you can take those now. I'm going to pray for us, and then take a few minutes with those around you, rejoicing and thanking God for what He has done in Jesus to save us. If you are not yet in Christ, the elements are not yet for you, okay? The elements, they symbolize what Christ has done, and our faith in what Christ has done for us at the cross. So if you're not a believer, I just want to encourage you, consider today, consider what Christ has done, and how you may have His mercy by calling out to Him. Okay? And then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, God, I thank You for this time of communion, this time in Your Word, Lord, and for the truth that we find in it, Lord, that though we are sinners, guilty of sin, God, with a sentence of death, eternal death, You have saved us through the righteousness of Christ. And we pray that You would... Be with us, God. Nourish our hearts in that truth, God. Help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: in standing again as we uh, join us in standing again as we continue our worship here together.